Welcome to the Nutrition Facts Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greger. I'm thrilled that you've decided to join me today because the more I learn about the latest in nutrition research, the more convinced I am that this information can make a real difference in all our lives, and I like nothing better than sharing it with you. On today's show, I could induce sleepiness by speaking in a monotone, or I could tell you about the fascinating sleep-inducing properties of melatonin. The body normally produces melatonin every evening to let us know when to sleep and wake, but sometimes we need a little help regulating those important functions. In our first story, over-the-counter melatonin supplements may not contain what they say they do, and the contaminants could be dangerous. If you're crossing three more time zones, and you plan on staying at your destination long enough to make it worthwhile, you can adjust your body clock to the new time with behavioral methods or pharmacological methods. The behavioral method is light exposure and light avoidance at specific times of the day, based on which direction you're going and how many time zones you cross. The pharmacological intervention is melatonin, the so-called darkness hormone. It's secreted by a little gland in the center of your head as soon as it gets dark and shuts off when the sun comes up in the morning, thereby helping to set your circadian rhythm. Now, there's been a lot of research done on treating jet lag, but most of it has come from like lab rats instead of people. But most of the handful of human trials that have been done have found taking melatonin close to the target bedtime at the destination to try to sync your body to the new time can effectively decrease jet lag symptoms after long flights. Now, unlike most, or really all other drugs, the timing of the dose is critical and determines the effect. Given at the wrong time, it can make your jet lag even worse. Uh, for example, if you were to take melatonin at bedtime when traveling west. Dose-wise, taking between 0.5 and 5 mg seems to be similarly effective in terms of helping with jet lag symptoms, but the higher dose does seem to have more of kind of a sleeping pill type effect, which appears to plateau at about 5 mg. But I mean, those are massive doses. E even just taking a 3 mg dose produces levels in the bloodstream 50 times higher than normal nightly levels. Yeah, it works, but we don't know how safe that is. After all, melatonin in the early days used to be known as the anti-gonad hormone, with human-equivalent doses of just a milligram or two reducing the size of sex organs and impairing fertility in laboratory animals. Now, obviously rats aren't people, but considering the pronounced effects of melatonin on reproductive physiology in other mammals, to assume that it would not have some sexual effects in humans would almost seem naive. In fact, they speculate maybe melatonin could one day play a role as some sort of contraceptive agent. Wouldn't we know about these effects, though? Well, how? I mean, melatonin is available over-the-counter as a dietary supplement, so there's no you know, post-marketing surveillance like there is with prescription drugs. And then there's the purity problem. You know, supplements are so poorly regulated that you never really know what's actually in them. Uh, for these reasons, melatonin supplements cannot be recommended. Is the purity issue just theoretical, though? You don't know until you put it to the test. And indeed, due to the poor quality control of over-the-counter melatonin, what they say is often not what you get. 
Melatonin is not only one of the most popular supplements among adults, but children too, which makes it even more egregious that actual melatonin content varied up to nearly 500% compared to what it actually said on the label, based on an analysis of 31 different brands, and most had just a fraction of what they said. And the most variable sample was a chewable tablet, which is what kids might take. It said it had 1.5 mg, but actually had 9, uh, which could result in like 100 times higher than natural levels. In short, there was no guarantee of the strength or purity of over-the-counter melatonin, leading these researchers to suggest it should be regulated as a drug so that by law at least it would have what it says on the bottle. OK, but that's strength. What about purity? Four of six melatonin products from health food stores, two-thirds, contained unidentified impurities. With no exclusive patent, no pharmaceutical company wants to pay for the necessary toxicological studies. I mean, the stuff is just sold so dirt cheap. Uh, they recommend buying it from some large, reputable pharmacy chain and just hoping for the best, but this study suggests it's not worth the risk. Contaminants present in tryptophan supplements were reported to be responsible for a 1980s outbreak of a disease that affected more than 1,000 people and resulted in dozens of deaths. Given the structural similarities of tryptophan and melatonin, maybe when you're trying to synthesize melatonin, those same toxic contaminants could be created, suggesting melatonin supplements may just be another accident, another epidemic waiting to happen. As it turns out, there may be a way to get the benefits of over-the-counter melatonin supplements without the risk. Here's the story. Unfortunately, there is no guarantee of the strength or purity of over-the-counter melatonin supplements, which have been found to contain impurities that raise serious safety questions. For these reasons, melatonin supplements cannot be recommended. Too bad there's no way you could get the benefits without the risks, unless melatonin was somehow found naturally in certain foods you could eat. Melatonin was first discovered in plants in 1995 and has since been found throughout the plant kingdom. But enough that eating them actually affects your levels? Yes, you randomize people to eat more or less vegetables, and you can see the effect. Hard to get people to eat vegetables, though. How about beer? The melatonin present in beer contributes to increases in the level of melatonin in the human bloodstream, though alcohol consumption may actually mess with your own endogenous melatonin secretion, so beer probably isn't the best choice. Eat two bananas or drink the juice of about two pounds of oranges or pineapple, and you can get significant bumps in melatonin concentrations in your blood. And the melatonin levels found in those fruits are actually pretty modest compared to some other foods. We make melatonin, so it should come to no surprise that other animals do too. The most melatonin-rich meat tested was salmon, uh, but because there's only billionths of a gram per serving, you'd have to sit down and eat about 200 pounds to get the effect. OK, so forget meat. What about whole grains? The highest recorded was a strain of corn so rich in melatonin you'd only have to eat 16 ears of corn. All right, scratch that. What about other vegetables? Plain white button mushrooms top the list, only 2 pounds. A hundred times more melatonin than meat, 
but still, they're so light. I mean, two pounds is like eating 10 cups of mushrooms. That's a lot in one sitting. Thankfully, cranberries to the rescue, the most melatonin-rich fruit, just a single ounce, and it's like you just took a melatonin supplement, with only good side effects other than, of course, the extreme sourness. That's about a third of a cup of cranberries. They're pretty sturdy, so you could travel with them without them getting smushed. Uh, but what do you do with them once you get there? They're easy to blend into a smoothie, but what if you're stuck in a hotel? Can you eat dried cranberries, like uh, uh, what do they call craisins? A study of various tart cherry products suggests that the drying process wipes out the melatonin, so no melatonin in dried cherries, and presumably dried cranberries either, nor in juice. Uh, the level of melatonin in cherry juice concentrate was almost non-detectable, so drinking cranberry juice would also presumably be a wash. Which brings us to nuts. Pistachios are not just the most melatonin-rich nut, they are simply off the charts as the most melatonin-rich food ever recorded. Uh, to get a physiological dose of melatonin, all you have to do is eat two. What? Two what? No, just two pistachios. More than 200 micrograms of melatonin per gram, 0.2 milligrams per gram. And you can get the normal daily spike your brain gives you, taking just 0.3 micrograms, so, so just two nuts. So, so taking a whole handful of pistachio nuts is like taking one of those high-dose melatonin supplements. Uh, so the best food for jet lag appears to be appropriately timed pistachios. In our final story, we'll use a cheat sheet to figure out exactly when and how to treat jet lag using light exposure and light avoidance at specific times of the day based on which direction you're flying and how many time zones you cross. Jet lag is a blessing to circadian biologists because the disruption of mental and physical well-being immediately highlights the importance of their work, the study of our internal body clock. Much of the general malaise we may experience on long journeys may just be so-called travel fatigue, which can occur regardless of the time zone, leaving people feeling disoriented, generally weary, headachey. Dehydration has been blamed. The air circulating in the cabins of commercial airlines is pretty dry. Yeah, it can make your throat, skin, and eyes feel dry. But if you do the math, uh, the maximum loss of fluid through like breath and sweat wouldn't be more than like an extra half cup. So it's not like you're in Death Valley or something. And that calculation assumes that the passenger would be nude, and I'm sure they'd charge extra for that. Of course, giving people salty pretzels doesn't help. The vegetarian option tends to be healthier if they're serving meals, but you have to specify that when you book. BYOF, bring your own fruit, is a good rule to fly by, or unsalted nuts as a snack. The cabin air isn't just dry, but low in oxygen pressure about what you'd get uh, 10,000 feet above sea level, like twice as high as Denver, and that alone can make you feel not so great. Uh, then when you land, if you've crossed enough time zones, you can suffer from jet lag, which is the temporary disconnect between the new time at your destination and that of your own internal body clock, which is still on home time. This is abnormal since our internal clock is normally synced to the outside world, uh, but the symptoms of jet lag go away as our body becomes hip to the new time. This usually takes in days, 
two-thirds the number of time zones crossed eastwards, compared with half the number of time zones crossed westwards. So London is like six time zones east away from Chicago, so flying there it may take four days before you're back to normal, whereas Londoners flying to Chicago should get over their jet lag in only three days. The reason it's easier to go west, where the day is longer, than east is because our internal clock is naturally set for longer than 24 hours, and has to be reset every day. That's why they call the daily rhythm circadian, meaning about a day. In fact, you can see this in Major League Baseball performance. Researchers churned through 40,000 games, mining 20 seasons, and found surprisingly specific results of circadian misalignment, jet lag. And indeed, the problems arose most after eastward travel, with very limited effects after westward travel, consistent with the greater than 24-hour cycle length of the human circadian clock. OK, but how do you treat it? First, you need to figure out if it needs treating at all. If you're just traveling one or two time zones, you don't have to worry about it. If you're crossing three or more time zones, like traveling coast to coast, it then depends on how long you plan on staying. If it's just a few days, it's probably not worth treating it, since then you'll have to switch back as soon as you get back home. Uh, if you have control over your schedule, it's better to time appointments in the new time zone to coincide with daytime back home, so I mean, it's pretty much common sense. If you travel east, your body will still think it should be sleeping in the morning, so you should push stuff later, and vice versa. But if you're going to be gone a while, you can adjust your body clock using behavioral methods and or drugs, supplements, or foods. Uh, there's only one surefire way to avoid jet lag altogether, and that's to adapt to the new time zone before your trip. However, you know, changing your home sleep schedule more than a few hours can be counterproductive by interfering with your pre-trip sleep, and you, know, you don't want to be going into a long trip already sleep-deprived. Before your trip, you want to maximize your sleep. In flight, the recommendation is to immediately adjust to the destination meal schedule— easier said than done— and then once you land, you want to try to maintain the destination sleep schedule. Uh, try not to nap more than a few minutes, and you don't want to be driving around when your body thinks it's the middle of the night. But the key to treating jet lag is light therapy. Going east, you expose yourself to bright light in the morning and avoid bright light in the evening, and vice versa, going west. Uh, but it's more complicated than that. The advice switches if you're traveling through more than six time zones, because your biological clock may then adjust in the wrong direction. And it's even more complicated than that. Uh, the effects of light acting upon the body clock is only actually during a specific window around the time your body temperature bottoms out. Uh, this is usually around 4 a.m. You drop from 98.6 down to like 97.6, even when you're not sleeping. It's just part of our circadian rhythm. The bottom line, if you fly from L.A. to London, eight time zones east, you'd avoid light between 6 a.m. and noon local time, and expose yourself to light between noon and 6 p.m. local. And the rest of the day, it doesn't matter, and won't affect you either way. OK, now, but that's just on day one. On subsequent days, the local times of light avoidance and exposure need to be advanced earlier by one to two hours each day until light avoidance coincides with when you're sleeping. 
but on those first few days after traveling east, you'll note you're going to want to be avoiding morning light, which can be difficult if that's when your flight gets in. Uh, one thing you can do is wear really dark glasses until you get indoors, but if they're too dark, you can't really drive. So that's where these kind of ugly orange lenses that block blue wavelengths can come in handy, uh, preventing the dip in melatonin you get just wearing regular sunglasses. Regardless, the next day, I know there's the urge to get out and about, but that could actually make your jet lag worse by taking you in the opposite direction. What about if you're flying more than eight time zones east? Then you subtract the number from 24 and treat it as travel west. So a 10-time zone trip to the east, like New York to Delhi, should be treated as a westward flight, requiring a delay in your body clock, across 14 time zones. In that case, it would be easy to get outside and get some sun, but if you just went four time zones west and need to get light in the middle of the night, what do you do? A gadget company came up with like light-emitting headphones, the theory being you could bathe your brain in light directly through the ear canals. They stuck them in the heads of cadavers and did seem to get some light penetration, but you don't know until you put it to the test transcranial bright light exposure via the ear canals could alleviate jet lag symptoms, or you could just turn on a lamp. We would love it if you could share with us your stories about reinventing your health through evidence-based nutrition. Go to nutritionfacts.org forward slash testimonials. We may share it with our social media to help inspire others. To see any graphs, charts, graphics, images, or studies mentioned here, please go to the Nutrition Facts podcast landing page. There you'll find all the detailed information you need, plus links to all the sources we cite for each of these topics. Be sure to check out my new How Not to Die cookbook. It's beautifully designed with more than 100 recipes for delicious and nutritious plant-based meals, snacks, and beverages. All proceeds I receive from the sale of all my books goes to charity. NutritionFacts.org is a nonprofit science-based public service where you can sign up for free daily updates on the latest in nutrition research via bite-sized videos and articles. Everything on the website is free. There's no ads, no corporate sponsorship. It's strictly non-commercial. Not selling anything. Just put it up as a public service as a labor of love, as a tribute to my grandmother, whose own life was saved with evidence-based nutrition. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Facts. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greger.